0: We are on the brink of a mental health crisis, and this is why I am so appreciative of the folks over at BetterHelp. They provide the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, and affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. Sign up today, go to BetterHelp.com, and use the promo code healthcare and get 10% off. Sign up fees. 99 at gmail.com, reach out on Facebook at Quadcast, or online at drquadjo.ca. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Quadcast Nation, super exciting episode I got flowing with you. We got Keely Dayton. She is a nurse practitioner that has taken ICU delirium, ICU mobility so seriously. She's got her own consulting firm. She also has her own podcast, Walking from the ICU. Such a great phenomenon. And so we got her. You'll hear this episode. It's a live cast that we did a couple weeks ago. I'm just really proud of her. Just someone that's taken getting people healthier and out of the ICU and functional absolutely seriously. And we need more of that going on right now. We're only going to see higher demands. So without further ado, I'm going to bring Kaylee on. But first, check out our latest newsletter, uh, quadcast.subsec.com. It has everything quadcast, our episodes, our newsletter, guest blog appearances, guest blog appearances. You guys are going to love it. Qualcast.substack.com. Check it out. Without further ado, I want to introduce you to Kaylee Dayton. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. I've been following your podcast. I appreciate your mission, and I see a lot of our objectives are in line.
0: Oh, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. So, Kaylee, can you walk us through your story? Like you're you're a nurse practitioner that is is is, like I said, changing the the outlook for our critically ill patients, but how did you get here?
1: Absolutely. I, I'm sure a lot of my listeners know my story very well, but I started out as a brand new nurse many years ago, over a decade ago and um in awake and walking ICU. And I didn't even, that's just what I call it now. That's the term that I've coined to describe what they do there. But in the interview, in my naivete, I was just excited to be there. Had no idea what they were talking about when they asked would you be willing to walk patients that are on ventilators? Mm. And I was willing to do anything, right? I was just a brand new graduate. And I said, yeah, of course, absolutely. Teach me everything. And I didn't understand the magnitude of that question until probably three to eight years later. Because when I started working there, no one made a big deal out of it. For decades in that ICU, it's a medical surgical ICU. It's high acuity. They've had a COVID ICU throughout the pandemic. Mm. They've maintained this practice of allowing almost every patient to wake up, usually right after intubation, unless there's an actual indication for sedation, which being intubated on mechanical ventilation is not an indication for sedation. So unless they have um, inability to oxygenate with movement, seizures, intracranial hypertension, something like that, otherwise they are awake mm-hmm. and they're reoriented and they're allowed to communicate, tell us what they need. We manage their pain according to what they tell us. And they're usually mobilizing shortly after, within hours after intubation and throughout the day and throughout their time on the ventilator. And so that was completely normal. No one told me, hey, Kaylee, this is the gold standard of care. This is the you know model for all early mobility um, uh, protocols in the world. Everyone knows about this ICU. No one told me that. So I spent a few years there thinking that that was normal critical care medicine, knowing none the wiser. Then I became a travel nurse and I went to other ICUs in the, in the United States. And my very first contract, when I walked into the ICU, it just felt different, but I knew it, I I expected things to feel different, right? It's a new environment, but everyone was in bed. Everyone looked like they were asleep. Mm. Um, There was very few signs of life and I got my patient assignment and the patient was uh, sedated um, and on the ventilator. And I didn't know why they were sedated. And I wanted to continue my routine, do a, a neuro exam, hopefully get the patient in the chair ready for physical therapy, because that was my routine. And they wake and walk in ICU. A lot of times physical therapy comes on and the patient is in the chair waiting for the physical therapist to take them on a walk, even on the ventilator. So I asked my oriental nurse, Hey, can I get this patient up and take him for a walk? And she looked at me in horror and said, no, they're on the ventilator. They're intubated which didn't make sense to me because I'd cared for, you know, at least hundreds, maybe in thousands of patients that were on the ventilator and were awake and walking. And it was, I had no idea what she was talking about. And I said, I I know that they're intubated, but why are they sedated? And she said, because they're intubated. And I'd say, okay, but why are they sedated? And we went in circles. And that was the first time it ever crossed my mind that a patient would be automatically sedated just because they were intubated. And I quickly realized that that was the common perspective throughout the ICU that I was the odd man out Now, here's the thing. Despite my years of experience treating patients like that, I knew how to do it. I didn't know why we did it. No one had taught me what sedation actually does. No one taught me what it's actually like for patients um, and how much it changes outcomes. So in that environment, I didn't have the tools to support my approach and my practices and to advocate for my patients. And because I was still kind of a new nurse and I was you know, you just try to fit in on the ICU. There's so much peer pressure. There's the culture is such a huge part of it. I ended up just taking the win in Rome approach. And I just went with what I was surrounded with. And I ended up, yep, yeah, following along, sedating all my patients. Mm. Um, And I didn't really obviously know the difference. I, I mean, I saw a difference in outcomes. I saw patients stay on the ventilator for far longer. I missed the human connection. I noticed that there were a lot of tracheostomies and um, nursing home and LTAC discharges that I did not see in the wake and walk in ICU 93% of survivors from that high acuity medical surgical ICU that I came from went straight home after the after the ICU
0: that is nuts that is nuts
1: that's what I thought was normal so I was noticing things but I couldn't really put my finger on it I couldn't advocate and I just went with it right and I even laughed at some of the nursing jokes about yeah I hope my patient's sedated and and totally snowed today um Thinking think that that was funny. And, and it wasn't until years later that I was in grad school. And of course, even in my acute care doctorate program, nothing was mentioned about sedation and mobility practices. It was just assumed, even in our case studies, it was assumed that if a patient came in with pneumonia, they were going to be sedated if they were on a ventilator. Um, I was on a plane ride and I sat next to a survivor. And when he heard that I was a nurse, an ICU nurse, the color dropped from his face. And he started to telling me about his experience of over four years before that moment um, when he was a patient. And he told me what it was like to be on a ventilator, um, but he barely, just barely mentioned the ventilator. All he could fixate on was what it was like to be in the middle of a forest with his limbs nailed to the ground and trees were falling down on him and he couldn't run away mm-hmm. and demons were coming to the sky and lots of things that he still couldn't talk about because he was so deeply traumatized. And I was a complete stranger on this plane and he's sobbing to me, telling me about what he experienced. And of course I wanted to diagnose him and I said, well, it sounds like you had see delirium, but that meant nothing to him. And I came to realize as I listened with real empathetic ears, that that wasn't just a nightmare. Those weren't hallucinations. Those were vivid and real. And he was psychologically, psychologically scarred as if he'd physically lived through those scenarios. And I was really shooken. And I really hoped that he was one in a million because he was telling me that for a year after discharge, it was really difficult to relearn how to sit, stand, walk, swallow. That was really hard. But the hardest part was that for a year after discharge, every time he closed his eyes, he would be lost back in that forest, back in that scenario, and he could not sleep. So the depression, anxiety, physical disability, I didn't ask about the cognitive function because I didn't enough, know enough to know that he would be at high risk of having post-ICU dementia, but he said that he still had not returned to his career. That his life was over. He said, I know I I feel bad even telling you this. I should be grateful to the ICU for saving my life. But my life is over. The life I knew before the ICU is gone. I lost my life in the ICU. And if I were ever to become sick, I would never cross a toe back into the ICU. So he was a DNR, DNI in his 40s with no other real comorbidities because he never wanted to live through that again. And I think what he meant by that was ICU delirium. And I had, I had worked in the ICU about six years. We never, I never heard anyone talk about anything like that. So I thought this has to be a fluke. He has to be, you know, one in a million. So I went to survivor groups and I thought I would have to post and ask survivors questions. No, the second I got into the survivor group, I just scrolled through and almost all their posts were about the trauma suffered under sedation and these medically induced comas, what it was like to not be able to balance their checkbook, read a book read a clock like they were barely able to text like these are people saying how long is this going to last my brain is not the same and so that that is what's got me into looking into the research and I was shocked to find decades of research exposing the harm of our normal practices and yet we continue to do those things and I was back in that awake and walk in ICU seeing a completely different way and I was seeing this contrast from what I experienced as for years as a travel nurse and then where I was currently at as um a doctorate student nurse. And then, um, then I started working as a nurse practitioner in that same ICU. And that's when I started this podcast, uh, walking home from the ICU to show what they were doing in that ICU. And now it's turned into how do we revolutionize our normal practices in the ICU?
0: I got so much here, Kaylee. <laughs> like, first of all, I never even would have comprehended or or would have thought that your initial experience, I didn't realize that your initial experience was People were able to ambulate and and get out of bed and reduce the amount of sedation. So and people
1: are going to say, "Oh, well, that must have been you know long term venters or um, not the high acuity." Um, they were the first ICU to publish uh, the study back in 2007 showing that it was safe and feasible to walk patients on ventilators. And in that study, they had PF ratios less than 100.
0: So that what that means in non medical folk is that your oxygens were your uh, lungs were extremely damaged. And uh, requires a lot of supplemental oxygen to to make sure your saturations are, uh, were high enough, that your oxygen levels were high enough. So this is the sickest of the sick from a breathing perspective, getting up and hustling yeah. and moving. And so, so that is amazing. Okay. Um, but yeah, the, just from a personal side, just it must have been an absolute... Mind f that you couldn't that you you went from one extreme to the other because I bet like I'm gonna tell you from my I've worked in several ICUs in in my country and the the latter is the norm people aren't getting up on a ventilator you know they're not getting they're barely getting up into a chair on a ventilator and they're
1: not even getting sedation vacations they're I mean they're they're snowed
0: yeah like. My number one job, I haven't, I shouldn't say number one job. One of my main jobs in the ICU when I walk in is minimizing sedation. And and even like my, often I see in practice that they, you know, they're getting dilated or opioid infusions or uh, for no real reason, to be honest with you. They're not, they're not post, they're not post-op. Uh, they, they have no pain syndrome. They were given pain medication in infusion, which accumulates, and and what you're describing too amongst patients, my other jobs in palliative care, when they get, uh, you know, overly, when they get toxic or delirium, delirium from medication, yeah, that could be traumatic. That these memories, these images, last and
1: can be scary.
0: Yeah, and could be scary, and so yeah, I. Yeah, that must have been an absolute frustrating experience to go from one version to the other.
1: Um, I was just really confused. I I mean, I was still, I feel like I was still pretty new in my career and pretty impressionable. And because no one taught me the why, that's the unfortunate thing about a lot of our medical education is we're taught how, we're taught task lists, but we're not taught the why that allow us to critically think and see a bigger picture. And I felt like I, looking back, I was really victim to that. Um, I, but I would still ask every ICU. So shouldn't this patient get up? Can I get them up? Because it, I, I knew that that was beneficial. I wanted that. And a lot of it for me was, I wanted to see my patients get better. And when you're walking to patient ventilator, you know, that they're progressing, you get to connect with them. You get to know who your patients are. I had no idea who my patients were. They were just bodies in the bed. And that's not why I got into medicine. And Mm -hmm. so I missed that. So even just selfishly, I wanted them to be off sedation. Had I known that by taking off sedation, we could decrease their um, seven-day mortality by 68%. Oh, I would have been all over that, but I didn't know. And I did work in one IC where they had some level of the ABCDF bundle, which is a protocol to help guide teams to minimize sedation and get patients up. But there's such a spectrum of compliance and different approaches to it. So I was taught to do an awakening trial, which means you turn down sedation. Um, The purpose really should be to get them off sedation. It should be sedation cessation, but I was taught. So, you know, at five o'clock in the morning, we have to turn down sedation. It's super annoying. I know, but just turn it down. Wait to see them thrash. That's how, you know, when you see all their limbs move, you know, they haven't had a stroke. Then you, and you can tell they can't tolerate the ventilator. Then you turn the sedation back on and call it a failed trial. Just Mm. chart it. And I was confused. I didn't know what the objective was. I didn't know what we were doing. I didn't know why they were agitated. Um, and for her, her to say, it's because I can't tolerate the ventilator. That was confusing to me because I'd seen so many patients tolerate the ventilator. I didn't understand delirium and I hated awakening trials. They were laborious. They were stressful. They felt unsafe. And it's hard to see patients be in delirium. It's hard mm. to see them be so uncomfortable and you can see the tear in their eyes. But again, when in Rome, I just did what I was told, unfortunately. And so this is my journey now is almost my penitence for the harm that I caused my patients during those years.
0: Well, I mean, let's, let's be honest, Kelly. You can't, you can't be looking at it that way, man. Like <laughs> right, no, you know, we, we all like, remember like you well, you're the sedation is a norm, but, uh, what we're do, doing now is trying to advocate for change. And I, and I can't re re emphasize too much. Like the change can be dramatic for, for people. Like it really comes down to function. Like if you can't we're in the ICU and you're paralyzed intubate, intubated on sedation and, and analgesia, you're not moving. Like you're not using your muscle. And then when you're trying to go back to what you wanted to, where you wanted to be, like, you know, I think a lot about our COVID patients. Like these guys were, you know, in the 40s, 50s, 60s that are trying to get back to working, that were trying to get back to doing the activities that they love to do. And in like when you think about this, like not only are you impacting their ability, like they're not getting to their functional level, but what's it doing for their family? Like now you got a loved one that's got to take care of them that might have to take off time off work, too. Like it just is an absolute amplifier when people can't be functional.
1: And for those that maybe don't work in the medical field or even especially those that do, here's what we're not talking about the bedside. Here's what we're not telling patients and families You know, when you go into surgery, they give us uh, informed consent. They tell us here are the remote risks of things that could happen, right? What we don't do before intubation for patients and our families is tell them the actual risks of sedation because we don't understand ourselves that sedation is not sleep. It disrupts the brain activity so severely that they don't get real REM cycle. So my perspective is that it's a form of torture, really. I mean, that's what we do in, in war in the military. We deprive people of sleep. And that's what we're doing to our patients when we give medications that make it so they cannot get restorative sleep. Um, Many of our sedatives are myotoxic, meaning that they're toxic to the muscles. So it causes more muscle breakdown. Um, And then on top of that, there's absolute disuse. When you're that deeply sedated, you're not even contracting a muscle usually. And so that disuse makes it so that our muscles break down more. Mm -hmm. Um, That disruption of sleep often is one of the mechanisms that causes delirium, which is acute brain failure, it's an organ dysfunction. And that can turn into long-term post-ICU dementia, cognitive impairments. So they cannot return to their normal lives, can't take care of their families, um, can't go back to their jobs because they can't cognitively, their brains can't function the same way anymore. They have this post-ICU PTSD because of those vivid scenarios that they lived. I'm not going to call them hallucinations because that's that's not accurate. Those were real to them. Mm-hmm. Um, we we just don't see that big picture of sedation and we, we just don't even question. And I, I do that a lot in my life too. There are things that I'm just taught that I don't question, but we don't question whether or not sedation is necessary. Sometimes it is, but when we understand how risky it is, then we can do a true risk versus benefit analysis for each patient to say, okay, they're intubated for this reason, does that necessitate sedation? If not, let's get it off and see what they need. Let them communicate. Let's prevent delirium. Your, your platform is all about preventative medicine, but in the ICU, you come in with one acute critical illness and you, we sign them up for chronic conditions.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Absolutely. And it's, it's, as you said, like it really is about what can we do to prevent this from becoming a chronic condition? And Honestly, it takes a whole, it's a culture change from what I could see. Like what's sad about medicine is that we have data to support how bad things are or how good things are, but the amount of time we invest in, create that change is, is limited. Like, I, I mean, if you look at the data for sedation vacation, so that same principle of, Hey, use turn off someone's sedation uh, periodically that. We we know that has positive outcomes, like we know that. But you could go through an ICU throughout any country in North America, and you, you there's odds that you they're not getting it routinely, like you know. And, and so why why it doesn't that happen? And that's why I'm I'm like really proud of Kaylee for number one being a champion of this because, I mean ICU care sucks, but a lot of us will end up in there. And so we want to be able to optimize care, but also like just doing something about it. Like there's one thing to, to, to bring attention to it, but like just also being an activist, I think it it, it helps. So, So, you know, you got the podcast, Kaylee, you've, you've done some other work. Like how, how else have you been able to, increase awareness and, and, and you could even get into like what the podcast also has done for you or, and the people around you.
1: So with the podcast, I started that, um, right before COVID hit. I, I don't know if you're a God person, but I, God told me to start a podcast in December of 2019. And I barely even listened to podcasts, didn't know how to start one, but I couldn't, I couldn't rest. And I knew exactly that I had to start, like I had to put out 32 some odd episodes by the beginning of March of 2020. And I didn't know why it had to be so fast and so furious and survivors came out of nowhere. Um, I interviewed my colleagues, researchers. It was just this miraculous setup that just came together, put out all these episodes and then COVID hit. And I thought, well, okay, now it's all going to be all about COVID. No one's going to care about this. And it's like, I got backhanded me and said, this is for COVID. There are going to mm-hmm. be millions of people on ventilators. How is this not relevant to COVID? So I continued it throughout COVID, even though I recognize that, ICU community was not really in a place to revolutionize, but the hard thing is that this could have been so beneficial to COVID. We created more work for ourselves with these sedation practices. You talk about awakening and breathing trials. Um, once I just looked at only awakening and breathing trials, starting sedation, turning off once a day, and then turning it back on, decreased ventilator days by two point four days in the ICU, decreased by three. Days in the hospital decreased by 6.3 days. When we're in a staffing crisis, we need to have a process of care that's efficient, and actually gets patients out of the ICU. Instead, we created this bottleneck where patients are now stuck in the ventilator because they're too weak to breathe on their own, even if their lungs are better. Now they need tracheostomy. Um, they're stuck in the ventilator. And we can't, at least in the States, we couldn't get them to LTACs because LTACs were too full of all the other COVID no, what, oh, what's survivors. LTACs? Long-term acute care hospital. So it's a rehabilitation essentially. So, but then the ICU wasn't rehabilitating these patients. And so then they develop more hospital complications and then they end up um, needing more care. It's just, we created so much more work for ourselves, but it just was a hard time to really take on a new endeavor and totally change your practices. But during COVID, everyone ran back to the nineties, not everyone, but a lot of people ran back to the nineties, as far as using benzodiazepines, higher doses of sedation, deeper sedation, longer times. Like There was so much fear. We did a lot of fear-based medicine. So I just kept chugging along with my podcast knowing that the, the community was going to need healing after all of this. And we were going to need a lot of rehabilitation within our own clinicians, but also within our practices. And so now teams are coming to me saying, what we're doing now we're still doing COVID care, even though these are not COVID patients. We're still, we're back to deeply sedating patients where our we lost so many seasoned clinicians. New clinicians came in during COVID. They've been trained to deep, deep, deeply sedate. They don't know how to move patients. They're scared to. Um, but one team said, I look around my ICU, it's not an ICU, these aren't ICU patients, these are LTAC patients, these are rehab patients that we're not rehabilitating. Mm-hmm. We're bottlenecked. We can't get these patients out, patients out, we can't get new patients, we're stuck. We're creating that kind of scenario. And so now I work as a consultant and I do training with the teams. I teach them the why, the reality of delirium, giving them a picture of an awakened walking ICU using real case studies, pictures, videos, um, so that we have a vision of what could be. I feel like the A to F bundle, when it was rolled out in the mid-2010s, good change happened. A lot of things moved forward. I do feel like we didn't explain fully the why behind it. Hmm. Until every ICU clinician hears the voice of survivors, they won't be afraid of sedation. They'll still be inclined. And we started, we continued this start sedation automatically. Then at some subjective point down the road, start to take it off. When they come out agitated, turn it back on. We just didn't, we didn't give them this perspective of, hey, most patients should be awake and walking. And here's how to treat delirium. And here's how the team works together. We put a lot of it on nurses, which is not fair, feasible, or sustainable. So, as I work with teams, I try to really give them a foundation of why and then how, how to treat patients without automatically sedating them. When is sedation necessary? How do we navigate um, appropriate and safe sedation practices when we do use it? How do we mobilize patients? I go on site with teams and I do simulation training. We do real case studies and practice and the whole team practices together um, because it's a skill set. You think about pronation, when, when we started proning patients, everyone was terrified and it took So many people and it took so long, you know, watching every little line and now teams flip them like pancakes, right? It becomes a skill set. So I try to get them opportunity to practice that on a pretend patient so they can think through critically, think through the scenario, think through delirium, think through IC acquired weakness, then practice mobilizing patients with different levels of mobility.
0: You know, my brain is going, like, uh, the whole time. is like, you need to come see our group.
1: Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, I'm on to plane tomorrow. Actually, I can't. I'm going to Kentucky tomorrow, but let me know. I'll be there. <laughs>
0: no, but you know what yeah. I'm saying? Like, I I think, wow, we would absolutely love to have you. Just knowing, I think where, we're, where a lot of us or clinicians lack is hearing the voice of the people that have gone through it. And because clearly... Kaylee, that's been a motivator for you in terms of why we need to pivot and provide more or less sedation to our patients and mobilize our patients and avoid them from having all these secondary complications as a result of being immobile because, you know, the means are there. And, and I the mean, data
1: is strong. The data is really powerful. I mean, decreasing mortality by 68%. Who doesn't want to do that, right? Hmm. So, But almost even more powerful are the voices of survivors. When you hear their voices in your head, when you're sedating a patient, it's haunting. In COVID, there were times when patients couldn't oxygenate with movement and I had to sedate them. I hated it because I, I just felt sick because I I just didn't know what they were experiencing. I didn't know if they were in pain. I didn't know what was going on underneath, that they were going to live with this the rest of their lives. That It's because of the survivors that I interviewed on my podcast. They are the educators.
0: Hmm. Yeah, no, th- this is, I got so much ideas going through my head. And I would love, oh, after when we jump off, <laughs> links to the episode, some of the episodes from the survivors that we could pass along to our group cause, uh, or, or to our show in general. Like, yeah. we'll de- But uh, to our group too, uh, to give a sense of what it really is like to go through this Cause yeah, our patients don't come back. I mean, every once in a while we get a a patient come back and say how they're doing, but they don't give us the, they don't give us the, the, you know, the negative side. They really focus on showing some gratitude, you know, which Um, is
1: good. But if they came back, it's probably because they weren't too traumatized to come back. The ones that don't come back. I mean, why would you go back to the place that you you thought you were sexually assaulted?
0: Yeah, no. Yeah. it's It's
1: too triggering. Some people can't even go the same street as that hospital.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, oh, and so, so on point. my website, under the resources tab, the clinician podcast, at the bottom of the page, it is organized by topics. And so, one of those topics is survivors of sedation and immobility, as well as survivors of an awakened walking ICU. So you can hear their different perspectives and testimonies, as well as it's organized by different topics. Um, delirium you're organ- clinicians. You're an,
0: you're an organized cat. I'm looking at it right now. You, 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 I can tell you. You're very structured and organized, just by the the way of, uh, your, your 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 website is set up. It's on point.
1: It's curriculum. This is education. This is not just a hobby. I mean, this is we've got to make sure we get the right information to the right people. So. Oh my
0: God, you're so you're a boss. <laughs> you're an absolute boss. Yo, it's so it's she, you. You could be running an organization one day, Aaron, and I see. I don't know. You, you. I, I see. I see big things for you. <laughs>
1: see I, I i mean i have i have a lot of optimism for the future of critical care going to conferences meeting with people at the bedside podcast listeners reaching out i mean it's not just me that cares about this that's why i continue is that there are so many people that i call revolutionists sometimes they're the lone voice in their icus but they're bringing big changes they're making waves there and so my motivation with the podcast is to provide the ammo the quiver the arrows on their quiver so that they can share that with the, their colleagues get more buy-in um so that they don't have to reinvent the wheel it's a lot to change a perspective and change a culture it's hard
0: yeah and, and maybe just seeking some advice about like we had uh oh my goodness his brain's gonna let uh, uh, Eli see on the uh-huh. show and uh about how to create some culture change around this issue but i i want to hear your perspective kaylee how do you think you do create that culture because like right now you bring us up to many staff and they'll be they would be like, oh, they're going to extubate themselves. Oh, we're short-staffed. This is not going to be able to work. Like, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, this has been a lot of my journey is figuring out what are the barriers and how do we address them? Um, I think we're over the checklists. I think it is important to systemize and protocolize our practices. But when we implement these kind of changes, we this can't just be, hey, nurse, take off the sedation. That is not going to work. Um, and they're, uh, they have some valid fears. If all I had ever seen was a patient coming off of sedation after days to weeks of sedation, I would have a lot of inhibitions when I'm busy. Mm-hmm. I don't have time to wrangle that patient. I don't have time to make sure they don't self-extubate. I have a whole episode on unplanned extubations, but delirium increases the chances of unplanned extubations by 11 times. Mm-hmm. So it's just changing the perspective, understanding what is delirium? Why should we be panicked about it? What causes it? We, our practices are some of the biggest risk factors and culprits of delirium in the ICU and delirium doubles the nursing hours required for care. So when we're short-staffed, why would we create a delirium factory when it doubles our workload? It doesn't make sense, but when that's all we know, we don't understand that there's a better way to do it. So my approach when I go to, to help a team have culture change is to again, explain the why give a perspective of what could be. Here's what patients can be like when we don't sedate them. If they When they wake up after intubation, it's like coming out of a colonoscopy. The endotracheal tube's not comfortable. Here are some tools to help make it more comfortable. Here's how we can talk to them. Give them a pen and paper. I would get agitated and panicked if I couldn't communicate. The, here, here's how you involve the family. Here are the, all these other, here's a whole toolbox to help you succeed in having that patient be calm and compliant, and they will protect their tubes. I've had patients write, don't, or be, please be careful of my tube. That's what they need to experience. So when you find a couple of case studies, some some easy hits, easy wins, and allow your team to see a patient awake, communicative, calm, and even mobile on the ventilator, that's when the perspective starts to shift. And then they start to ask, okay, that was easy. That was fun. That changed outcomes. They walked out of the ICU. Who else can we do this on? And it starts to have a domino effect. So sometimes we expect teams to just shut up and do it. And that's, that's not going to cut it. I don't think that, I think that's partially why the ADA bundle rollout years ago was not, um, has kind of gone away because we didn't provide the why. And we also, again, I think starting sedation and then taking it off later is a lot of work. We should only do that if it's absolutely necessary. Otherwise, I mean, I have an episode with a hospital in Denmark. They do the same thing. They allow patients to wake up right after intubation and they're so much easier, more compliant because they don't have delirium. We have to understand that that agitation is usually rooted in delirium. We have to come to really be terrified of delirium.
0: I re- I'm really enjoying this. I'm re- I'm really, I'm really liking this. Cause it's even added that added perspective of, of saying, Hey, your workload is going to be worse if people are delirious. So let's avoid getting delirious in the first place, yo. Like, let's just get a grip on this bad boy. Out of the let's gate,
1: stop it! You're all about preventative, and it's like let's prevent one of the biggest culprits of mortality. Delirium doubles the risk of dying in the hospital. So people yeah. say we don't have time to mess with all sedation practices. Like let's just sedate them and like save their lives and then figure it out later. No, by doing that, by increasing the risk of delirium, we could double their chances of dying. And so, yeah. if we care about mortality, then we will care about our sedation practices. Um, we On also head. know that eyes acquired weakness. Is really laborious. When people imagine mobilizing patients on ventilators, what they're imagining is taking off sedation days to weeks later when they're delirious, they're um, they can barely lift a finger, and now we're trying to mobilize these you know 200 plus pound adults to the side of the bed. That's dangerous, laborious. It takes so many people. What I'm talking about usually is allowing if a patient walks into the ICU or into the hospital hypoxic, hypotensive, whatever. We have them on a ventilator. We have them stabilized why can't they walk? Did we cut their legs off? Right? So once we have them auctionated, perfused, why not? What's the harm in sitting outside of the bed and seeing how they do when they're not delirious, they can tell us how they're feeling. We can um, provide more support in the ventilator. Um, they can probably walk better than they did coming in hypoxic uh, mm-hmm. at, once they're stabilized hours later um, or even 24 hours later. So that is so much easier when they maintain their ability to walk. So in the COVID ICU, many patients were stand by assists to the chair with a nurse while they were on the ventilator because they're alone in the room, right? Physical therapy could go in and work with a patient, just scoot the ventilator wall to wall as they're stuck in their rooms, help them stand or sit, uh, step on steps, arm bike. They were alone in that room with these patients because they were strong enough to do it because we didn't allow them to be under myotoxic sedation um, and Completely, I would say, rot in the bed. So, all of that plays into an ease of workload. And then, obviously, they get off the ventilator sooner, get out of the ICU sooner. It makes the workload easier. And so, it's a little bit of an exchange and efforts in some ways. Yes, you have to talk to a patient. Yes, you have to assess them a little bit more. But also, during COVID, I was hearing about swapping out propofol bottles every hour, peeping up to go in and out to titrate vasopressors that we were giving just because of the sedative and the hypotensive effects. All of that is effort. But wasn't necessary, and was it beneficial?
0: Hmm. I'm telling you, this is where you're you're changing the boogie, changing the the boogie, yeah, changing the conversation and perspective. Because, like I said, this is something that can dramatically impact patient care, and if we could get the buy-in in the culture. Wow, And Especially- the buy-in, you
1: know, they're like, oh, what people will say, well, we don't have, we're trying to save $25 million this year. We can't afford to, you know, pay our, pay our clinicians some extra time for education or whatnot. The ADF bundle, even in their spectrum of compliance, decreased healthcare costs by 24 to
0: 30%. Oh yeah.
1: I see acquired weakness increases healthcare costs by, I want to say 30, 40%. Um. Delirium increases healthcare costs by 40%. ICU-acquired weakness increases healthcare costs by 30.5%. So by having a process of care that de- prevents those um, complications, we decrease healthcare costs. So
0: Listen, sorry, why not?
1: Yeah. No, so why wouldn't we, right?
0: 100%. We even, we had a paper out last year showing the financial impacts of ICU delirium. So, time and like the we always gotta think too of the opportunity cost that money could be diverted into more staffing more resources for physio you know uh, optimizing nutrition all these things can be enhanced if we if we uh make it a priority but um, i think
1: it's one of our one of our strongest cards to play for staff safe staffing ratios to say staff is better, we'll give better care in this using this protocol, and we will save you so much money. So it's investing thousands to save millions or billions.
0: I love it. I love you're speaking my language. Oh my goodness! <laughs> Listen, we are gonna ha- definitely have you back in some capacity. I don't know if that, for some reason. I uh, it's not just gonna be the show. I, I really want to get you talking to our our group. Maybe it's the re- regional rounds or or, or or something. I don't know what it's gonna be, but it's something that we need to hear more of talked about the patient experience, your own experience and the drive, like what what's pushing this. Cause I think I know knowing my people, all the, a lot of the intensivists and, and ICU nurses and allied health professionals, we want to achieve this, get our patients to a point where they are better, like really better, not alive, but thriving. And this, and it starts here. I really do believe it starts here. And so, I just want to give number one, Kaylee, some mad love on what you're doing and continue to hustle. It's paying off. Second, how do people get to know you a little bit more and about the show and the consulting and so forth?
1: So I have a website, www.DaytonICUConsulting.com. There's more information about um, consulting services available. The podcast is on there. The podcast has transcriptions and citations organized by topics. They're about so uh,
0: organized, folks. <laughs>
1: 116 episodes. And um, I really didn't even know how how much of a, what's it called? A rabbit hole that this would become, but there's so much to learn about um, the science behind what we're doing as well as the patient cl- and clinician perspective. So um, check that out, find the topics. Um, if nothing else, start at the beginning. I think the beginning lays a foundation. I was very intentional about how I organized it at the beginning to lay a foundation of why and then the how comes later. Um, I'm on Instagram, Kaylee Day, Dayton Icy Consulting, Twitter, TikTok. Um, but go ahead and set up a consultation with me. Send me an email and we can chat about your team, your barriers, um, even your family members, what's going on. I'm obviously obsessed. So I'm here for you. Let me know.
0: So good. So good. Thank you so much for joining us. Those on the the chat group or on that watching live, if you want a piece of this episode? Just tap NL into the chat box. We'll give you a copy, the video and the and the uh, podcast when it's released. Awesome work! Congratulations. This is
1: Thanks incredible. for caring about this.
0: Hundred percent. Podcast station, That's exactly what I'm talking about. Changing the boogie right here. And I see you care. So. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, Facebook at quadcast.com. Leave any comments at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Subscribe to our newsletter. Essentially, it's like a membership, y'all. Yo. You want to know more about Quadcast Nation? Go to quadcast.substack.com. Check it out. Leave that five-star rating. And then continue to allow us to change the boogie in unison. All right, folks. Take care. Peace. We love you.